Jesus saves all kinds of people. Okay? He saves all kinds of people. There's not like a certain type of person who's a Christian. Last week we began looking at the Beatitudes, which is sort of a profile of the character of, of a Christian. That every Christian is meant to embody uh, these qualities of being poor in spirit, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, being merciful and so on. But there isn't one type of person who's a Christian. It's not, not one type. We can see that in this room alone. Like, let alone if we looked at the, the church globally. There is a diversity of backgrounds and people who are Christians, who Jesus saves. Right? He's, Jesus saves people who didn't finish high school, and he saves people who have like multiple PhDs. He saves extroverts, and he saves introverts. People who love like lots and lots of people, and people who love lots and lots of books, like me. Um, he, he saves all kinds of people. He saves hillbillies. He saves hipsters. He even saves the occasional hillbilly hipster. You find that rare combination, it's a gem. Um, Jesus saves all kinds of people. He saves people who come from, you know, well put together, really nice families and homes where there's lots of stories about Jesus. There's lots of support and encouragement growing up. He saves people who also come from homes that are absolute train wreck. You know, abuse and discouragement, no support. He saves people from all over the map. He saves people who, who come from lives of privilege. Like some of you were born into privilege. Some of you were born with a mountain to climb right in front of you, day one. He saves all kinds of people. And we need to get that, 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 that through our heads. We need to get rid of this idea that there's a certain type of person who's a Christian. There are all sorts of different type of people that Jesus saves. People from every tribe and tongue and, and language and, and culture. Um, he saves us into one family. Right, we see Jesus in the Gospels. We see him saving wayward people. Right? Irreligious people indulging in sin. We see it in Luke 7. Jesus saving a prostitute. She comes into the scene and there's a room filled of these self-righteous religious teachers. And they're like making fun of her. Making a big deal about her sin to kind of put her down and build themselves up. To elevate themselves because of how much better they are than her. And what does Jesus do? He says, you guys are the fools. You guys, you self-righteous jerks, are the fools. And he, he extends mercy and forgiveness to a prostitute who comes in humbly, wiping his feet with her tears and her hair, anointing his feet with perfume and weeping and kissing all over his feet. Jesus does the same thing to a woman caught in adultery. Not a former adulterer, but a caught in the act. Like it, it was just happening. She just got caught. And this group, another group of religious leaders, self-righteous people bring her out before Jesus, getting ready to cast stones at her and kill her for her sin. And Jesus says to the men who busted her, he says, let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. What happens? Does anybody throw a rock? They, they drop their stones, they go home. And Jesus says to the woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Over and over again, you see Jesus saving wayward people. And this is good news because many of us were wayward. Many of us are wayward. Maybe today we come in here, that's us. We're, we're living a, a life indulging in all kinds of sin. And many of us were rescued out of addictions to alcohol, to drugs, sexual sin, pornography. Many of us were rescued from uh, homes that were abusive. 
where they were just shattered, all kinds of brokenness. And it's good news that Jesus lifts us up out of the muck and mire and he sets our feet upon the rock. It's good news that he saves wayward people. But he doesn't just save the wayward, he also saves the uninterested. And I love this as somebody who preaches on Sundays because I know some of you don't want to be here. Right? You're like, she made me come. Like, they dragged me here today. I didn't want to come. I just said, I'll go. I'll satisfy my friend. I'll come. I'll listen. I'll just leave. And I'll tell him it's not for me. And we'll be done with it. But I'm okay with that because I know that, that Jesus saves uninterested people. Now, you can come here today thinking that, but you can leave here hungering and thirsting to know more about Jesus. You come in here today thinking that and get saved right now. Me, Jesus, completely transformed life this morning. Like, he's that big. The gospel is that powerful. Not only does he save the wayward and the uninterested, Jesus also saves from the self-righteous and the morally upright. And this is good news as well because Jesus saves church kids. He saves church kids. He saves one out of a strip club. He saves another out of Sunday school. And that's awesome. That's awesome. Because what's happened is some of us, we come from church backgrounds where all we got was this legalistic moral code completely divorced from any real knowledge or connection to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We think we're Christians, but all we are is just keeping a checklist. It's a completely different kind of slavery. Slavery to a checklist of rules that I keep and I perform to earn and and keep my standing before God. And Jesus liberates us from that. He saves us from that and says, no, you can never earn it. I've earned it for you. I give it to you freely, a gifted righteousness. And he renews and he saves the the self-righteous, the morally upright. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. There there isn't one type of person who's a Christian. Jesus saves all types of people, the religious, the irreligious, the uninterested. Saves us from every culture and language and, and, and nation he saves people um, in the Middle East, right? He saves people in the Middle East. He's going to save people in the Middle East as our friends go. He saves people in Brazil. Some of us had the opportunity to go and work there. He saves people in Bloomington. He saves people everywhere in between. All kinds of people, all kinds of backgrounds. And what he does is he saves them into one family. And this is where it gets interesting because that's kind of volatile. Right? That's explosive, like when you have the, the woman who was saved out of the strip club sitting next to the, the, the person in community group who's confessing like, my deepest, darkest sin this week is that I watched an R-rated movie that wasn't about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That's a little, that's a, that could explode. It could blow up. It's volatile. But there's something beautiful that happens as God brings us together. He makes us a people. He makes us a people. And you don't have to be a Christian to understand like having a people. Right? Like, I have a people. I'm married, have three kids. Crystal, Seth, Leah, Levi, those are my people. And so at the end of the day, like, yeah, it's volatile in there sometimes because we have different personalities, different passions, things collide, different temperaments about things. But at the end of the day, I love them. I'm going to serve them. I'm going to pour myself out for them. I, I, I take a bullet for them. You know, that's my people. You guys, I don't know about, you know. I don't know so much, Right? That's kind of how that works. Like we got a people. But here's what happens in the church, though, as Christians. We're saved into a new family. And we have a people. We have a people. All these diverse backgrounds. And it's volatile. But, but there's something beautiful about it. You know, we say blood's thicker than water, but the blood of Christ is thicker than any of our genetic blood. 
And that's why for some of us in this room, we're far tighter, far closer, far more connected to our brothers and sisters in Christ than we are to our own mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters who aren't in Christ. It's a beautiful thing. He binds us together. He makes us a people. He saves us from all these different backgrounds. He adopts us into a family. And he makes us a people and he gives us a purpose, a mission. That's what we're going to dive into today. Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. You stand together, turn there in your Bibles. It's on page 689 in those gray Bibles on your row. Let's hear from God's word. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put a light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your grace at work in our lives and how you have renewed us, how you're saving us, how you're at work today. God, I pray that you, you, would, you would reach us today, that you would penetrate hearts that are uninterested, hearts that are self-righteous, hearts that are indulging in all kinds of sin. You would expose that. You would lead us to trust in you. You lead us to faith and repentance today. God, would you renew us to be reflectors of your glory in this world? that we would point people to the only hope of rescue in you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen. You may have a seat. Right, if the Beatitudes in verses 3 through 12 are a profile of Christian character, then verses 13 through 16 show us how that character is to work its way out in relationship to the world around us. In other words, verses 13 through 16 show us the purpose of a Christian, the mission of a Christian. In other words, God saves a people for a purpose. We just talked about this. He saves all kinds of people, all kinds of different backgrounds, and he makes them a people, a people together. And God saves us new people for a purpose. Peter, a guy who was present for the preaching of the Sermon on the Mount, one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus, he sums this up in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once you were not a people, but God has made us a people. He's made us his people through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He lived the life that we never could, a perfect life, completely righteous, obeying the law in every way that we fall short. He died the death that we deserve to pay for our sins, to pay the just penalty for our sins, to rescue us from death, to reconcile us to God, to reconcile us to one another in this new family. And he rose again to display his victory over sin and death and that we share in that victory through faith in him. Jesus doesn't save us as individuals. That's really in vogue in our culture, like this personal, private relationship with Jesus, but he doesn't save us just to be individuals alone with Christ. He saves us into a family. Yeah, sure, he personally rescues you from your sin, but then he puts you with brothers and sisters. He adopts you into a family that you're to be a part of, that you are to be on mission with. 
And as a family, we're to proclaim the excellencies of the one, Jesus, who called us out of darkness into his light. And this is the outworking of the Beatitudes, what we talked about last week. This is how they work their way out. This is the outworking of our salvation, the outworking of this character of grace. We responded to the gospel with an acknowledgement of sin and repentance. We were poor in spirit. We are mourning over that brokenness. We responded with faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in his salvation through him, that his righteousness that he gives to us, we receive that. And then we hunger and thirst for more of that, that we want to be made more and more like that as we walk with him daily. Even though we'll never attain it, we, we hunger and thirst for it. He's made us a people. He didn't just reconcile us as one to God, one to Christ. He reconciled us together so we, we show mercy because we've been shown mercy. We, we're peacemakers. We're all about reconciling together, being merciful with one another, you know, enduring hardships together. That's how we roll. That's how we're to be. You know, and not just inside the church, inside the walls of the church, but it breaks outside the walls of the church too. We're ambassadors of reconciliation all over the place. Not just with each other here, but in the city that we're seeking to be ambassadors of that. That's what it means to proclaim the excellencies of, of Christ who called us out of darkness into life. That's what it looks like as these qualities that we talked about last week work their way out of our heart. We're to take the gospel to the world around us, to tell the people the grace that we've received, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ so that they might know it and experience it too. For some that might be following a call to the Middle East. For some of you that's following a call to go across the street, to go next door. Right? To go to your neighbor and know your neighbor, to have a relationship with them, to share with them the hope that you have in Christ. To take the gospel to your work, to your school, to the park, you know, in your house with your kids, wherever you're at, to take the gospel, to be salt and light. That's our purpose. That's what Jesus says here in these verses. And he uses these two illustrations to communicate that. He talks about salt and light. God saves a people for a purpose. And Jesus says that, Christian, you are to be salt and light in this world. So let's look at the first one, salt. Verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Let's just stop there for a minute because we need to understand what he means when we say salt. Because we think salt, we're like, yeah, add a little salt on my... My food, give it a little flavor. So does that mean we're the flavor of the world, the, the spice of life or something like that? What, what's that mean, you know? Um, how, let me ask you this. How many of you in here own a refrigerator? Okay. All right. How many of you own two refrigerators? Or your, maybe your family back home has two refrigerators. Don't be shy. Get those hands up there. That's legit. You got two fridges. You got that drink fridge in the garage. That's legit. Um, if deep freeze. Here's my point, Right? It's a scientific, historical fact that no one at the Sermon on the Mount had a refrigerator. They did not own one of those. Okay? So what, what they used salt for was as a preservative, to preserve their food. It wasn't like for flavor. They weren't adding salt for a little flavor. They were keep, using it to keep meat from rotting, from decaying, from going bad, spoiling. That's what it is. So salt as a preservative, that's what Jesus is saying here. That's the meaning. And in calling Christians to be the salt of the earth, Jesus is also saying something about the earth itself, is he not? He's saying, this place is in decay. It's rotting. It's dying. You're to be a preservative here. It's not basically getting better. It's basically getting worse. The Enlightenment, 
came around. And people were like, you know, we can just develop all these things and we can make the world the perfect utopia and it will happen. There's a guy named H.G. Wells. Right? He had a couple of different quotes I read in, in prepping for today. One was right around, just after the turn of the century, um, right around 1900s, early 1900s, where he said something to the effect of, basically one day, all of our children will live in this perfect world. There will be peace. There will be harmony. All the diseases will be cured. We'll all be great and glorious. It will be perfect. And then 20 years later, he writes another quote that basically says, Humanity has broken my soul. What happened? Like a world war? Like it didn't get better. Reality set in. It's not getting better. I mean, look around the world. We got wars, abuse, brokenness all over the place. Slavery? Oh, yeah, we're done with that. No, there's 27 million people enslaved, enslaved right now in the world. That's more than any other time. It's not getting better, it's getting worse, is what Jesus says. And understanding this helps us understand what our purpose is here. As Christians, we are a preservative for a decaying world. We, we are to be agents of change, agents of redemption in this world. People seeking the renewal of our city. You know, people seeking the renewal of our world by taking the gospel in word and deed. Not one or the other, both. Word and deed. You're the salt of the earth. Let's finish what it says here. But, that, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And this is, again, why it's important to understand Jesus is speaking of salt as a preservative. Because it's scientifically speaking, there's nothing you can do to salt to make it not salt. You can't, the, the molecule's solid, all right? It, you can't change that. Um, it's, it's salt. It doesn't lose its saltiness. So what he's talking about here has to do with diluting salt, diluting it. You know, one of the oldest forms of thievery in the world that still exists today is to take a pure substance and to kind of cut it and then bring in something that kind of resembles it but isn't really it, an impure substance, and kind of mix it together. You know, drug dealers do this, take advantage of you, right? We'll, we'll do a little weed and we'll mix in a little oregano, right? Makes it go farther. Right? You made a run for the border last night? Like I did after a baseball game? Yeah. You thought you were making a run for the border. You got hoodwinked. Yeah, we'll call that beef in your taco. Beef, right? It's a little bit beef, but we're going to kind of mix in some other substance that maybe, I don't know, some other animal, some other genetically engineered something. Uh, you know? You got hoodwinked. Hoodwinked. Does taste good. Not pure. <laughs> Clearly, Right? Right, so someone would take a bag of salt in Jesus' day, they rub down meat to keep it preserved. But if you mixed in something that looked like salt, that wasn't really salt, an impure substance together with the salt, and then you rub that on the meat, what happens to the meat? It rots. Because that salt is worthless. It's, it looked like salt, but it wasn't really salt. There's like some salt, but some not salt. And so you might as well just throw that out the window and let men trample all over it. It's worthless. It's worthless. Here's what that looks like for us. I'm personally prone to struggle to make, I want people to like me, right? I, I'm a people pleaser by nature. I want people to approve of me, to like me. And so I can be tempted to compromise things at different times, to like not speak up when maybe I should speak up, maybe kind of hide things when I should be open about them. 
I'm a people pleaser. Maybe you're like that too. I don't think I'm probably the only one in the room. We compromise. But here's the deal. When Jesus saved us, he put us at odds with the world around us. He made us aliens and strangers in this world. That's what the the Bible tells us. Aliens and strangers. We don't fit in. But we're not to be agitators like that. We're not like go around looking for a fight. We're to be ambassadors of reconciliation. Taking the gospel and reuniting people to God and to each other. But anytime that struggle to please people comes in and causes me to step away from the truth of the gospel, that only Christ is the way of rescue. Through faith in him. Repenting of our sin, owning our sin, putting our trust in Jesus Christ. That's the only way of salvation. When you shy away from that and you try to remove the offense of the gospel, you dilute the salt. You dilute it. And you're worthless as an agent of change, an agent of redemption. You're completely worthless. I'm not going to name names. We see this happening with several mainline denominations in, in our country and around the world. Right? Mainline denominations that at one time proclaimed Christ, but then decided, you know what? Jesus needs a makeover. Then we need to change what Jesus says about it. It's not just mainline denominations. It's also a handful of emergent church leaders kind of in the same boat. We think Jesus needs a makeover. We need to change what he said about that, what he thinks about that, because that's not as palatable for the people in our day and culture. So let's, let's go in and give him a makeover. And what happened? It's worthless. They diluted the salt, and they're worthless. And what you see in a lot of those denominations today is these big, amazing, elaborate, beautifully constructed buildings that are empty because there's no people there because it's worthless. Even making a gospel that's palatable eventually runs the people away because who wants to buy into that? Right? It's a shame. It's a sham. It's worthless. Jesus doesn't need a makeover. So where does being salt take place? Wherever God has you right now. Wherever you're at, you're to be salt. At your job, at your school, in your neighborhood, your home, wherever. You're a faithful witness where you're at. You walk in integrity. You refuse to enter into what is sinful around you. Right? Here's one way you can be salt. Sometimes it's just saying, no thank you. No thank you. And you make the room really awkward. Because somebody invites you in to, do some, to sin with them, and you say, no thank you. I'm not going to do that. Some of you need to listen up to that. Because the struggle's fresh for you. The struggle's fresh for you. You're not that far removed from it. You're not able to stand on your own in it. And you need to say, no thank you. You don't need to go to that bar with those people. You need to say, no, thank you. Make another choice. You don't need to go watch that thing, ever. No, thank you. No, thank you. Being salt also looks like stepping up to serve those in need wherever you are. Feeding the hungry, listening to the lonely, loving the unlovable. With our words, with our deeds, holding out mercy to this broken world. That's how you live as salt, as a preservative in a rotting and decaying world. That's how you live as an agent of redemption. Now here's the deal. None of us in this room are owning that. And nobody here is batting a thousand. It's baseball season. Who's a stat geek? Nobody's batting a thousand. Maybe they're batting a thousand for like a day in the beginning of the baseball season. Nobody's batting a thousand. Nobody in this room is batting a thousand in holiness. We might be in different places with that. But nobody is just owning that. So what does it mean for us to be salt? How are we marked as salt? 
I think it's a seriousness about holiness. That we're serious about holiness. And what that looks like is that we're continuously confessing sin, repenting of sin. Constantly confessing and repenting of our sin. As God exposes that through his word, through Christian community, we confess we repent, we push into the grace of Jesus. We know that our standing is secure in him and we rest in that, that I have unending acceptance because of his perfect life, his death in my place, his resurrection, that I am accepted. I have unending righteousness that's his, that he gave me freely. It's not based on my performance for him. I already have it. I'm gonna rest in that. I'm gonna let that renew me to live for his glory because I wanna hunger for that. I wanna own that. I wanna be that. I won't ever be that right now, but I'm gonna live that direction. That's where I'm going. And when you understand the grace of God, that's what it does in your life. Grace is never an excuse to continue in sin. If you're using the grace of God as an excuse to continue in your sin, then either you haven't encountered the grace of God or you don't understand it. Because when you truly encounter the grace of God, when you look to the cross and you see your sin, and you're like, my God, how could you forgive me for what I've done? How could you show me mercy like that? That doesn't make me want to go do that again. That makes me want holiness. It makes me want to live for Jesus when I do that. That's what the grace produces in your life. That's how you grow in this. That's how you live as salt. Don't use it as an an excuse to go on sinning. But when it's understood properly, it's continuously growing us to live more and more like this. That's the first illustration. Second is light. Verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Not only are you an agent of redemption, you are the light of the world. And that's a big statement. Because what is Jesus, who else does Jesus say is the light of the world? He says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So what that means is this, your good works are not the light of the world. Your glowing personality, your charm, your wittiness, not the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. But the beautiful thing about a Christian is, is you're united with Christ in faith. You're united with Christ and he dwells within you in the person of the Holy Spirit when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. Right? Christ is in you. The light of the world dwells within you. And what you are to be is like this giant mirror reflecting that light to the world around you. Reflecting the light of Christ to those around you. So what, what does that mean? What does that mean? It means that your life is meant to be a mirror just constantly reflecting that. You're displaying the glory. That you're shining a light on the need for a Savior. And also you're shining a light on the only way to find the Savior. The only Savior. You're shining a light on where you find rescue to the world around you. That's your role as a Christian. How do you do that? Well, you pursue holiness like we talked about. Growing in grace, pushing into Jesus, growing in holiness, living as an agent of redemption, embodying that love and grace in your life. And with your life, your time, your money, your resources, with your gifts, your passions, your talents, you invest that into the kingdom. And you point to the world. You know what? There's something better than this world. There's something more important than me. There's something more important than me. And I'm living for that. And you know what that does? That's like a, a 10,000 watt light cannon on this world. Because what's the message of our world? It's all about you. 
It's all about you is what our world says. You deserve it. You earned it. Why shouldn't you do it? Why shouldn't you have it? It's all about you. And when you can live in a way that says, it's not about me. It's not about me. There's something better, something greater, so much greater. That is shining a light. It's exposing the brokenness of this world, the lies of this world, and then exposing the only hope of rescue in the person of Jesus Christ. Living as light. And the Bible says when the world sees that, when the world sees us living like that, then it will glorify our God. It will glorify God who's in heaven. Something's wrong with, Christian, with us as Christians when we're not living this way. That's the negative side of both of these illustrations. A Christian who's a Christian in name only, but doesn't live as a preservative, as an agent of redemption, is as useless as diluted salt. A Christian who doesn't share the gospel with their words and with their life is as ridiculous as lighting a lamp and then covering it with a basket so you can't even tell that you lit it. It's ridiculous. It makes no sense. Why would you do that? A church that isolates itself and hides from the world out of fear of judgment or uh, rejection or the church that compromises the gospel and gives Jesus a makeover to make him more palatable for the culture is worthless. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And that's what we're to be like. This glowing city within the world, right? Like when you're driving up to a a big city at night and you're coming from like the backwoods country roads and it's all dark around you, but you could see the glow of the city in front of you. That's what we're to be as a church. We're to be this beacon of light, pointing the way that we need a Savior and pointing the way to, to find the Savior pointing on the way to Jesus, to rescue in him. That's our mission. That's our purpose. Right? If you're struggling with this, I want to speak to you. I want you to leave with good news today. But if you're struggling with this, we need to talk, right? If you haven't shared your faith in the last 12 months, which studies show that like more than half of evangelical Christians haven't shared their faith in the last year, we need to talk. We need to search our hearts a little bit on that. If you find yourself hiding your identity as a Christian again and again, if you find yourself unable to say no thank you to the invitations to indulge in sin, if you, you need to examine your heart. You need to examine your heart this morning. And you need to ask yourself some questions. How are things with you and Jesus? And I don't want to catch you real quick before you go far with that question because that question has nothing to do with your behavior. It has nothing to do with your behavior. It's about a relationship. How is your relationship with Jesus? How are you connecting? Do you know him? Are you real with him? Are you opening your heart before him? Here's another scary question. Do you even have one? Do you have a relationship with him? Or do you just think you do? Who are you when no one else is around? Not when your spouse is sitting by you. Not when you're in a community group. Not with your friends around. But who are you when no one sees you? Who are you? Are you a lover of God? Are you a pursuer of truth and holiness? Jesus says salt that loses its saltiness will be trampled by men. And I have no doubts that some of you come in here today feeling pretty trampled. Feeling pretty beat down and discouraged and broken right now. And I want you to hear good news. Because there is good news. 
I want the weight to be taken off of you. I don't, I'm not saying this to put weight on you, but I'm saying this so you would search your heart and that the weight would be taken off of you, removed completely from you. The good news is that Jesus knows your struggle. He knows all about your struggle. There is nothing that you can confess to him that he does not know about. There's nothing you could repent of to him that he's going to be like, what? He already knows. He's already paid for it. He's already made a way. He knows. And so here's the deal. There's no risk in confessing and repenting to Jesus Christ. True, as Christians, when we confess to one another, we're sinful people still, right? We wrestle with sin. And you might get a sinful response from a brother or sister in Christ at times. Not a reason to not do that. That might happen there. Right? Somebody might jump the wrong conclusions and jump all over you in your sin. That's, that's not how they should respond, but they might. But listen, there is absolutely no risk of that with Jesus. No risk at all. Right? The cross stands before you and says, no risk. You can confess. You can repent. You can bring anything here. It's done. Finished. I paid for it. The cross is this screaming reality to the world that I know all of your struggles and I've made a way. I know all your struggles and I've I've made a way for them to be gone, for me to take them from you, for you to be set free. And so here's the deal. We're fools if we don't take that offer. We're fools. We're fools if we're like standing in the gym and we're like, no, dude, I got it, man. I'm gonna lift me some weight today. I'm racking it up. I got it. And Jesus is over there standing next to us. He's like curling infinity weight. Like, bro, come on, man. I can live more than you. You're an idiot. Give it to me, right? I can, I can carry it. You can't carry it. I can carry it. Give it to me. There's no risk. Don't leave here without confessing and repenting of your sin to Jesus today. Don't, don't do that. Take advantage of the opportunities before you. If you're struggling to live as salt and light, the answer is the gospel as well. If you're a Christian, like I'm walking with Jesus, but I just can't tell people about him, the answer is the gospel. I love what Bob Thune and Will Walker say in the Gospel Center Life Study. They say, God's grace is the driving force of all change. Internally, the grace of God moves me to see my sin, respond in repentance and faith, and then experience the joy of transformation. Externally, the grace of God moves me to see opportunities to, for love and service, to respond in repentance and faith, and experience joy as I see God working through me. In other words, the gospel is not just the answer to your internal sins, struggles, and heart idols. It is also the answer to your failure to love others, engage the culture, and live missionally. If the gospel is renewing you internally, it will also be propelling you outwardly. So what that means is, as we look to the cross, we see our sin, and we repent, we confess, and, and we're renewed in faith by grace, and we're, we see God transforming us, growing us, setting us free. We also look around, we see these opportunities to speak up, to share the gospel, to serve those in need. And we see our failure to do it. And we look to the cross, and we look at how Jesus pursued us. We look at how he left everything to serve us, to share hope with us. And we're renewed in that. We repent of our failure. We confess that. We own that. And we proceed in faith. And we see God transform us and work through us. The gospel renews us and propels us to live on mission. It's not you saying, I'm just going to work harder at it this week. But looking to the cross and seeing what Jesus has done for you moves you to want to share that with others. So let's look to the cross 
let God's rescue of you, let his amazing grace move you to live as salt and light. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you uh, for this morning and the celebration that we get to be a part of today. We thank you for your work in our life. We pray that you would continue just to meet us where we're at. God, I pray for those of us who, who need to confess and repent of sin in our life, that we would, we would feel the freedom that there is in that. That you know our struggle. And you stand ready to forgive, ready to embrace, ready to accept. God, would we repent of our sin? Would we trust in you? Would we be renewed by faith in you? Those of us who are, are, are walking with you, we're, we're failing in, in, on mission. Lord, would we look to you and how you've pursued us? Would we remember the grace you've shown us? And would we be so filled by that that we can't help but share that with others? Would you use us to reflect your glory in this city, in this world? God, would you save many through, through the work that you're doing in and through this body and in through your body globally. You continue to renew hearts and change lives for your glory and our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.